In this show, we're joined by Nate Zinser, director of West Point's Influential Performance Psychology Program, where he shares some of the secrets of mental toughness and self-belief that he's gained in over 30 years of research and application. Hey folks, welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, my friend? Uh, for a Friday, I'm feeling very energized. I've had a uh, very um, fruitful week, lots of great conversations. Um, how about you, Scott? How are you feeling? I'm feeling, what am I feeling? I'm feeling confident and ready to perform is what I'm feeling. And I'll tell you why, because today we are joined by Dr. Nate Zinser. Dr. Zinser is the director of West Point's Performance Psychology Program. He's been the lead performance psychologist at West Point since 1992. He is an expert in the psychology of human performance who consults to individuals and organizations seeking a competitive edge. Working at the forefront of applied sports psychology for over 30 years, he has published scholarly articles in the Journal of Sport and Exercise Psychology, the Canadian Journal of Psychology, and in five editions of the widely used textbook, Applied Sports Psychology, Personal Growth to Peak Performance. He also helped launch the highly successful magazine Sports Illustrated for Kids by contributing a monthly advice column for five years and was presented with an American Library Association Award for his 1991 children's book, Dear Dr. Psych, A Kid's Guide to Handling Sports Problems. I could have used that book back in the 80s. Dr. Zinser's latest book, The Confident Mind, a battle-tested guide for unshakable performance was just released in January 2022, and we are delighted to be talking with him about it today. Dr. Zinser, welcome to The Evolving Leader. And thank you so much for allowing me to participate. I am really looking forward to this discussion. We are all leaders in our own right, and indeed, we are all evolving day by day. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Nate, welcome to The Evolving Leader. How are you feeling today? Um, I'll quote an old protege of mine with a wonderful expression, if I was any happier, I'd be twins. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, could you give us a, a quick um, picture of what West Point is, its history, and, and kind of what the um, experience is for the cadets? Because I'm thinking Scott could do with uh, coming for a you know, quick uh, cheap dip. I've got the haircut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, certainly. I can, I'm happy to do that. Um, the United States Military Academy, located on the west point of the Hudson River, was established in 1802. Our very first president, George Washington, perhaps the not most popular person uh, in British memory, his last executive order as president of the United States was the establishment of a military school to provide professionally trained officers for the young nation. The first young men arrived at on the banks of the Hudson River in the year 1802. And over the years, West Point, as it is known, has produced hundreds and hundreds of accomplished military and then civilian leaders. The Corps of Cadets today consists of 4,400 young men and women. Uh, the ratio of male cadets is about five to one female cadets. All those cadets undergo a very rigorous 47-month experience of academic training, military training, physical training. We also have over 20 intercollegiate uh, competitive sports teams. And 
if you succeeded that 47-month developmental experience, you graduate with a Bachelor of Science degree, and you are commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Army, and you serve a minimum of five years of service. Many West Point grads serve far longer than five years, and they rise to some of the uh, highest ranks in the in the U.S. military. We have had four-star generals, chiefs of staff of the Army. We have had chairmen of the Joint Chiefs. Those are the highest military ranks in the U.S. military that report directly to the Secretary of Defense and then to the President. Um, that 47-month experience is a very stressful, very demanding time of physical maturation, emotional maturation. And my job is to help each and every cadet that I come into contact with develop a sense of confidence about him or herself, develop the ability to focus on what's important, and to develop the ability to carry on despite stress and to self-regulate and generate enough internal energy day by day, week by week, semester by semester, so that they can see it in their uh, academic requirements, their military training requirements, the mandatory physical fitness testing that they must pass uh, each semester, all of which leads to graduation of a quality individual for the Army and the nation. You've been Director of Performance Psychology for a very impressive 30 years. For our listeners' sake, perhaps you can share with us how the field of performance psychology has evolved during that time and and what a typical day at West Point looks like for you. Okay, um, I'll start with the broad strokes first. Um, Way back in the late 80s, a visionary colonel teaching here in our behavioral science and leadership department had a rather blinding flash of the obvious. It occurred to him that certain intangibles your confidence despite the inevitable imperfections of our earthly existence, our concentration despite distractions, and our composure under episodes of stress, those intangibles were really, really, really important to the mission of West Point to provide leaders of character for the Army and indeed the nation. You know, we have state-of-the-art physical training. We have state-of-the-art technical, tactical training. But there was a gap. There was something unspoken, something unsaid, but that was rather deeply understood, that it was, you know, in the words of some old military writings, you know, it was not the bayonet that wins the battle. It is the look in the attacker's eye. Those intangibles matter a lot, yet we have volumes and volumes and volumes devoted to the physical and the technical and the tactical. And at the time, back in the late 80s, there was almost nothing about the mental, the emotional, the intangible. So this gentleman, Louis Choga, C-S-O-K-A, did some research in the newly emerging field of applied sports psychology, which was a branch of sports science that look directly at the psychology of training and the psychology of performing. And he came up with a skeletal curriculum, which he piloted 
with our varsity football team. That's American football, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> heads knocking, tackling, brutal, somewhat brutality. Um, that fledgling pilot program produced very good results. And Colonel Choga established a small performance psychology, or he called it a performance enhancement center, which was exclusively devoted to teaching this small curriculum to a select sample of our cadets who were involved in intercollegiate athletics. Over the years, 89, 90, 91, and into 92, that program flourished and expanded. And it was Colonel Choga's vision that every cadet would have an opportunity to participate in training that would allow them to develop these intangible skills that would certainly enhance their performance in the academic realm, in the physical training realm, in the athletic realm, and ultimately in the leadership realm when they became officers. I was hired in 1992 to be the civilian subject matter expert in this field. I had a PhD in sports psychology from the University of Virginia. That program was very much applied in orientation. The research was about how to make this work for people as opposed to doing the primary research in do these techniques and do these skills actually work. Well, we knew they worked. We just had to get better at applying them and making them useful and relevant um, for young learners. I also had a background as a competitive athlete. I also had a background as a adventurer. I had climbed big mountains in Alaska, several first descents. I had climbed, you know, carried heavy packs in mountains for months at a time. And I had also been a lifetime student of Japanese martial arts. So I knew quite a lot about hand-to-hand -hand combat and the reality of what it's like to be in a situation where you might get your face broken. Um, so I was brought in and I have served in that role uh, ever since. And in the year 2004, I was invited by the president of the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, which is the largest sports psychology professional organization in the world, to give a presentation on how we were taking sports psychology skills and indeed applying them in the military context. And so the emphasis went from simply athletic performance to performance across the board. And since that time, the United States Army has developed, um, with a lot of my input, some fairly comprehensive training for soldiers and officers throughout the Army. Hundreds of thousands of young men and women are being exposed to these skills with the expressed intent of helping them become better leaders, better performers, more resilient to the stresses, and then being able to re-enter civilian life confidently and comfortably. Could, could you take us through some of the, the building blocks of those skills? Like when you think about taking somebody through this program, what does that look like? Well, it typically starts with an understanding, uh, a reflection, and, a, and something of an analysis of what is indeed your state of mind when you are performing at your best. Almost everyone has had the experience of, you know, being in flow as the current term goes or being in the zone and we want to understand what is that like for you and what might be the mental tendencies that you have acquired over your life that inhibit your experience of that state of mind more regularly so in order to facilitate that experience in order to make 
a, a performer, I use the expression flow friendly or flow accessible or flow ready, we take them through a series of steps that will help them build up a sense of certainty about themselves to control where they put their attention, their eyes, their ears, their senses, given which kind of performance they're engaged in. We take them through a series of skills about understanding the human stress response, understanding the opposite, the relaxation response, and how to cultivate that so that one recovers energy and so that one can take a little bit of that edge off oneself when one is in a performing environment. We take them through a series of steps so that they understand how to create the right kind of pictures and short video clips in their imagination about a desired future performance. We help them understand how really that influences the nervous system. And then we take them through a series of exercises so that that they have a very clear understanding of their personal and team goals, right on down to the individual things that they're going to be doing day by day and the thoughts that they need to maintain, the beliefs that they need to be holding on to, the stories they need to tell themselves hour after hour in order to develop in the areas that are important so they have a chance to achieve their goals, whether that is a certain grade point average, whether that is um, leadership in a given part of the military unit, whether that is um, a national championship um, for football, wrestling, basketball, you name it. So really interesting. And, you know, when I just take you back to when you started and you, you know, as you said, you, you weren't a theorist, you were applying that theory and the skill was really figuring out how to make it work in the real environment. Can you give us an example of something that you did, you know, like the, the, the kind of more granular aspects of it that perhaps was quite counterintuitive to the culture at the time? Yeah, absolutely. Counterintuitive to the culture at the time. First and foremost, the idea that you could actually be somewhat compassionate toward yourself. Mm. Being able to forgive yourself for committing a mistake or for underperforming without feeling that you were sliding into complacency. Um, Similarly, the idea that you could look day by day for the best moments of yourself, that you could actually construct a list. Here's where I gave great effort. Here are the small successes. Here's the progress I'm making. Actually cultivating a very strong sense of your own efficacy, again, without thinking that that would make one complacent, lazy, that would take away the edge. There are all kinds of societal pressures that make us think that, oh, if we think highly of ourselves, we are not going to be aggressive enough, determined enough, uh, motivated enough to perform. And that societal pressure is certainly reflected in any kind of military environment. And to a certain extent, it's very important that one never becomes lazy, complacent, But the reality is that one can develop a very strong, powerful sense of self by reflecting on one's effort, success, and progress without losing that fire, that determination to put oneself into difficult, demanding training 
and come out better and better and better. I had to overcome, and this whole curriculum had to overcome some of those um, personal and societal pressures that we we're all uh, subject to. That's, uh, yeah, and again, really interesting because I suppose not knowing anything about about West Point, you know, um, apart from what you'd see on the films and maybe documentaries, you'd kind of imagine that losing your identity is a really critical part of fitting into a culture like that. Um, and what you're, you're saying, really the opposite there. I just wondered, have the values and culture of West Point changed as a result of, you know, the work you've been doing? I wouldn't say that the values of the academy have changed at all. Duty, yeah. honor, country, that's the motto. None of that has changed. We have a very strict honor code. Cadets must conduct themselves honorably. You will not lie. You will not cheat. You will not steal, nor will you tolerate anyone who does. Mm. What has changed over the last couple of decades is our willingness on an institutional level to develop competence. Previously, I mean, the model for West Point was one of attrition. We would do our best to identify talent of, in young men and women who had, you know, the expression is the right stuff. And if they did not display that right stuff rather readily, um, we would show them the door. These days, while we are maintaining the exact same standards in terms of physical training, in terms of academic performance, and in some ways, those, tr those standards have increased, they're more difficult, we are giving people the opportunity to study, fail, retrain, test again. We're developing them because we want to make sure that we're not missing out on somebody who might take a little bit longer to develop some of the attributes that are important to be a junior leader in the Army. What has also happened is that our, our cadet corps, our student body, has become more ethnically diverse, which is important because the United States is a very diverse country. So we have more women, more minority representation, because the officer corps of the army needs to be reflective of the army at large. And if we have lots of soldiers coming into the army from Asian, Latino, African-American backgrounds, well, daggone it, they need to see a lieutenant that is reflective of their background. So in those ways, the academy has, has evolved a little bit, but the core values, rock solid, that's not going to change. So I love so much, I love everything you're saying. Um, and, I, and I really, I'm really resonating with this idea of, you know, empathy and self-compassion it reminds me um and i'm curious to get your thoughts on this idea of imposter syndrome for some people because i've had several conversations over the years with people who are experiencing that when they take on a new a new role so sort of pivoting you know maybe into more of an you know private sector organizational context or or from whatever you've experienced in, in your work um I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. I even recall speaking with a CFO one time who told me that the first year he was in the job, he expected someone to come in at any minute and say, just kidding. 
you, you don't really belong here, right? This isn't this job isn't for you. Uh, so, how do you help somebody? You know, with some of the the what you're talking about, how do you help somebody overcome their own sort of sense that you know maybe I don't belong here or been miscast in some way? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. It's a very important topic. In that, in some ways, we're all dealing with that syndrome. Are mm. we good enough? Are we appropriate for this particular position, you know, are we appropriate to life? Um, that question, that issue may be disguised as, gosh, Dr. Zinser, I used to be really confident at my sport. I used to be really confident in myself as um, uh, in the academic realm. I was the high school valedictorian in my graduating class. But now I'm just in the middle of a pack. I've never been here before. I don't feel comfortable. I kind of feel like an imposter. I would say so much of my work really deals with just that sensation and how do we address it? And my answer is simple. Let's start looking at all the things that you accomplished that got you to a position where you were even considered for admission into West Point. Mm. If we're talking about an athlete, a competitive athlete, well, let's look at all the things in your past that contributed to your evolution, your development as an athlete, which the staff here at West Point was curious enough about to want you to join their team. Let's look for the best in yourself and let's for, let's remember that even though you were a big fish in your relatively small high school pond, now you've arrived at a bigger pond, but you haven't shrunk as a fish. You know, we didn't cut one of your legs off. You're now not any less able than you ever were before. And now you're in an environment with greater resources at your disposal better facilities through which to practice, better coaching and mentoring than you've ever had before. So I keep asking them, what happens to a perfectly healthy fish when she's taken out of a single of a particular pond, put in a much bigger pond where there's more room to move, more things to eat, and lots of other big fish who are willing to help her learn how to become any even bigger? And the answer is, of course, well, that fish gets bigger. So please, ladies and gentlemen, here you are in your new pond, an athletic team, a new job. You're in a new pond, but you're a big, healthy, same big, healthy fish you always were. So let's get out of this sensation of, gosh, maybe I don't belong here. And let's keep looking for reasons to believe in why you are appropriate to this job. It's a matter of how you are interpreting your experience day by day. And dare I say, hour by hour by hour. And we all have the human free will to interpret our daily experience in a way that makes us more certain about ourselves. It's a, it's a decision to make, a choice to make hour by hour. And if we do that right, we can build up what I refer to as a large psychological bank account. And that bank account allows us to feel that, yeah, I may be new here. It may be my first time dealing with these particular people, but I'm up to it. I'm enough.
I'm enough. Mm. Mm. So this seems to um, draw into major part of your work and a key part of your your latest book on the premise that you the most important mindset that one can possess is around confidence in terms of optimal performance now beyond the obvious description of the word what do you mean by confidence and how do how do we go about helping ourselves and others to become more confident yeah um i define confidence in a very functional context Confidence is your sense of certainty about a given ability or a given set of abilities that lets you execute those abilities without having to think your way through each step of them. The sense of certainty that allows you to execute relatively unconsciously. You you know how to do something and you allow that programming, that set of instructions encoded in your nervous system to operate without a whole lot of conscious discursive analysis. Um, I use the analogy of tying one's shoes, something that we all learned how to do long ago, a very complicated activity that requires numerous joints and muscles and, and, and sensory uh, organs in our uh, fingers, but we perform that unconsciously. We don't have to think about it anymore. We had to at one point, but after a few repetitions, we made the decision, I know how to do this, I don't have to think about it. That same process is possible for any of us in our various adult jobs. I have to give a sales presentation. I know it well enough that I can do it relatively unconsciously without analyzing myself step by step without introducing an undue level of pressure and tension, without getting parts of my brain activated that are not necessary in order to give the presentation. In a way, I want a somewhat quiet mind, which allows me to take in my audience better, which allows me to respond to questions more genuinely and fluently. That's the kind of certainty that we're looking for, that's how I define confidence. Yeah, because I think people could misunderstand that as being arrogance or… Yes, exactly. You know, the the common misperception of a confident person is someone who is somewhat boastful, somewhat loud, perhaps even brash, and that's not all that pleasant for, for many of us. The good news is that you can have this internal sense of certainty that allows you to execute very well and still be a very polite, very modest, very respectful respectful individual on the outside. I think it's important that you have both. You have yeah. to have that inner certainty, but it's also important in the social world that we live in to be polite, to be respectful, um, unless, of course, you don't care about being polite or respectful. And unfortunately, we've got a few confident people who are just like that. Um, But you don't need to be like that in order to have that inner certainty that makes your performance, um, that gives your performance the best possibility of emerging on demand. So you can marry that inner certainty with being open and doubt as well around things as well. So you can keep hold those two opposites. What do you find 
Because I love your your fish story, but what what do you find um, from a practical point of view? You help people at various of these kind of inflection points in their career um, to do to build confidence. Because particularly when you get to a point where you really think you are confident, and then everything changes, you go into another pond and another pond and another pond, and it it, mm-hmm. it all feels different. Is it the same process, or is there other other things it's, that you do? It's it's very it's a very similar process. Um, for example, um, we have hundreds of cadets who have participated in a competitive sport since they were five or six years old, and it has been their passion of their life. It has been the greatest source of satisfaction. In a way, it has been a, a, an integral part of their personal identity. And here they are approaching graduation from West Point. They will never again be competing as a tennis player, as a football player, um, as a basketball player. They will never be participating in that particular much-loved sport again at anywhere near the same level. They are now entering the United States Army as a junior leader. So the question for them is, what have you learned? about the pursuit of success and excellence through your years of experience becoming a footballer, becoming a tennis player. What are the lessons that you have learned about what makes for success and how are you applying those lessons right now as you are preparing to transition into a leadership role as a junior officer? So in a way, it is the very much the same process. Let us, let us look at what you know. Let us look at what you have accomplished in your past and let us draw some certainty from those experiences, even though you are going into, as you put it, an entirely different pond. Hmm. Often, all I need to do is reassure an individual that they have learned so many valuable lessons, they've accomplished so many wonderful things and it's okay for you to believe that even though these things happened in the somewhat limited context of uh, competitive tennis, boy, they sure do apply. Once you get out into the leadership realm in the army, or when you transition from that into a civilian role in the business world, the tennis player must be able, if he or she is going to be effective, to address each point as a separate entity, not to carry the elation from a previous game one or set one into the moment, nor certainly to carry the disappointment or momentary regret from an unforced error that just occurred, or maybe a series of unforced errors into the present. That's a heck of a good lesson. You're going to need that when you are dealing with customers, when you are dealing with clients, when you are designing, you know, bridges and roadways in an, enge- in an engineering uh, company, you're going to need that same skill to leave the past behind and engage yourself in the present. Your sport experience allowed you to do that. What can we learn from that experience in our present situation and use it to our maximum benefit? Over your time at West Point, you you must have worked with many hundreds of cadets um, and you've seen um, several generations um, and I'm just wondering given the proliferation of knowledge now in in the world around psychology and performance science 
Have you seen a, a kind of a, a change in the self-awareness and the knowledge about this amongst subsequent generations? Or, you know, how, 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 how are the cadets come in? Have they, have they changed? Yes, they have changed. Um, the skills and the need is unchanged. What has changed is the technology through which we do some of our teaching and what ha- and what has also changed is the way technology has influenced particularly this initial gener you know, this present generation of cadets they have all grown up online they're used to getting answers pretty darn quickly you know when i first started here before email it was a much more drawn out process to get the information that you needed to answer questions about your coursework or or from your mentor or anything else. So there's a little bit of, inst- I should say, culturally technology influenced impatience on the mm. part of 18 to 22 year olds today. Um, that said, some of them really appreciate disconnecting from the technology and learning to be in control of themselves. They don't necessarily need a meditation app in order to cultivate a sense of calmness and ease, which helps them recover energy, which helps them be attentive um, in their next thermodynamics class. so there is definitely a difference in today's 18 to 22-year-old. They're more facile with technology. In some cases, they're obsessed with technology. For many of them, they have to learn to stop the constant 24-7 um, fascination with being online because it sucks up a lot of their time, and they can't afford that. If they, if they want to get more than five hours of sleep every night, you got to turn off Facebook. You got to turn off Twitter, Snapchat, etc., because you have to study your history, your physics, your chemistry, your Arabic language. You got to let some of that preoccupation with technology go and just be a good old fashioned learner. That's a little more challenging these days. Mm-hmm. Can, can we talk about the book? Because you've, yeah. you've had some uh, already some great praise for it and great reactions from the world. Um, tell us a little bit about what the book's about, why you wrote it, um, and, and you know, what you'll get from, from, uh, from getting a copy. Okay. Um, I wrote the book about my experience and training methodology targeted around the concept of confidence because that was a question that keeps popping up over and over and over again. Um, Whether we're talking about somebody developing the confidence to compete successfully and make and get onto the tennis team, whether we're talking about the confidence um, for a cadet to succeed in our required survival swimming course, where they have to do a lot of underwater stuff, they have to be able to tread water, they have to be able to create an inflatable vest out of their uniform, they have to step off a tower six meters above the surface of the water. That challenges people. It's not that they lack the physical capability to succeed, 
It's that they are plagued with self-doubt because it's a new environment. They've never done this. So the question of, gosh, I just don't, I don't have a lot of confidence in myself anymore. What do I do? Because that question was so repeated, dare I say universal, I structured the book around that. And what any reader would uh, hopefully take away from the book is a better understanding of what confidence means in the context of human performance and some ways of building it up, constructively reflecting on one's memories, constructively telling oneself the right stories about oneself in the present, constructively using one's imagination to envision a desired performance rather than envision a whole bunch of future catastrophes. So building up that repository of thoughts, building up that bank account, being able to release some of the underlying limited beliefs about human performance and cultivating some better ones, and then the ability to reflect on one's mental bank account as one enters an arena and making that decision that I am indeed enough. Hmm. That whole process is outlined in the book. And judging from the reception just over the past few weeks, a lot of people are getting, you know, are, are, are benefiting from it. And I would hope readers would be able to build their confidence, protect their confidence, and then apply it where they need it um, in their various personal and professional lives. I really I like that. that. And yeah, I love that sentiment that I am enough. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, that sentiment is a direct quote from um, one of the ladies that I, I just so impressed by her, American gold medal wrestler Helen Maroulis, who won the gold medal in the 2016 Rio Olympics. She won a bronze medal just this past year in Tokyo. She, for her gold medal performance in 2016, she had to defeat the reigning Olympic champion who had won every world championship for the last 12 years. I mean, this was an undefeated icon of the sport who had defeated Helen Maroulis twice previously in competition. But Helen Maroulis had to decide that she was indeed enough. And coming to that decision by reflecting on her progress by, under, by coming to grips with the fact that, hey, you know, I'm not going to be perfect out there, but I don't have to be perfect in order to be excellent. And that's what I want to be. I want to be excellent. I've got to decide that I'm indeed enough. And that was her mantra, stepping onto the mat against Sayori Yoshida of Japan, a, a lady who had ruled that weight class for a dozen years. Hi, everyone. I'm Phil Kirby, producer of The Evolving Leader. We would really love it if you could give us just three or four minutes of your time to complete our listener survey using the link in the show notes. While you're feeling generous, please also go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a review. What would you say uh, to the leader who's listening right now who's saying, you know, I'm not really struggling with my confidence, but, but I'm thinking of somebody on my team and I'm struggling to help them bring up their confidence. What might yeah. you say to that person? I would say help that individual build a sense of certainty about him or herself. Can you be effective in helping that person take in his or her various small successes? Can you be very deliberate 
in helping them identify within themselves their improvements, their contributions to the organization. A, a leader has to build up his or her subordinates. A commander has to communicate to subordinate leaders and to the soldier on the ground how capable he or she actually is. So it's a matter of acknowledging and encouraging one's subordinates about the best in themselves and encouraging them to look for the best in themselves. Any, every leader can do this. And believe me, every subordinate is looking for that from their leader. Mm. Let's not fool ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. You know, the first person you have to lead is yourself. Mm. And, and sometimes that's overlooked. Okay, the first person you have to lead is yourself. You have to be your own inspiration, if, you know, so to speak. You have to be taking care of yourself. The way you lead yourself is going to rub off on everybody in your organization. And if you have a proclivity for, you know, being over serious, being routinely self-critical, why would you expect anyone in your organization to be anything different? The way you lead yourself is going to influence the way everybody else leads themselves and every, the way everybody else thinks. So it really is incumbent on anyone who is a leader to look honestly at his or herself and saying, what's the vibe that I'm giving off? Mm. Am I a functionally confident individual in my own right. What are people picking up from me? That's the responsibility of every leader. You got to lead yourself first. Can I switch the conversation for a second to um, helping our children to become confident? Ooh, yeah. If we were thinking about, you know, like I'm a parent. Um, I, I don't know if you are, Nate, but um, how do we how do we bring up confident children what advice would you give to 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 parents who've got young children be very careful with your messaging literally the language that you use when you are speaking to your child advising your child encouraging your child is very important if we tell our kid hey don't put your elbows on the table we're actually communicating to that child, think about elbows on the table because you can't make any sense of the statement, don't put your elbows on the table without thinking about elbows on the table. Paradoxically, paradoxically that almost encourages them to do it. So be very careful about communicating what it is that you want. Okay, sit back straight. Put your hands here, as opposed to don't put your elbows there. On the surface, it may seem that you're saying exactly the same thing, but neurologically, it's an entirely different experience. So communicate to your children in very specific terms. This is what I'd like you to do, and this is what you can pay attention to in order to achieve it. And once they do pay attention to the right things and produce the right behavior, please be right there and say, that's great. That was an act of kindness. That was what 
can really help us be a better unit here, be a better family. That's going to help you kick the football. That's going to help you hit the tennis ball. That's going to help you solve a lot of these arithmetic problems as you go along. So managing your messaging, being very, very clear and being very, very supportive of your child all throughout their younger years, really only until they're in their early teens, is it appropriate, at least in my experience, to be somewhat demanding? I need you to do this better. You can do this better. I don't think we want to encourage young children to be overly sensitive to their imperfections. We can wait till they have a somewhat better developed sense of self, and then we can encourage them to look at their imperfections, but to keep them in perspective and always communicating that, yeah, this is happening right now. If you pay attention to this and this and this, you can do it better. And won't that be wonderful? Um, it's a very subtle process. It's one that has to be indulged in time and time and time again. Um, parenting is an exercise in patience. Patiently communicating what you want, patiently observing whether you're getting it, patiently reinforcing each little step as it moves toward improvement and ultimately success. Yes, I'm a parent. I'm a, gra <laughs> I'm a grandparent now. Um, it, it's remarkable to observe how my daughter and son-in-law are teaching their four-year-old. Um, I'm suitably, I'm, I'm quite happy about it, I might add. Um, but, you know, they'll be the first one to say, hey, this is really hard. And I say, yeah, right, it is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Payback, dear daughter. <laughs> now, now it's your turn to be a very careful teacher, coach, loving parent. And you're discovering just how challenging it is at times. Mm. Yeah. Great question, John. <laughs> and they brought out a certain expression in your face, which our listeners can't see, but which is hilarious. Um, what um, uh, is exciting you right now? Because obviously our world keeps on changing in terms of new ideas and, and so on. Some of them are ancient and some of them are, are, are profoundly different. But where's your attention at the moment in terms of the new things that are shaping your discipline? Um, what I'm really excited about is to see if we can maintain the level of excitement about our immediate and long-term future that we were prone to look at prior to the COVID situation. You know, now we are physically isolated from one another to a much greater degree. There's a great deal of uncertainty about will we be able to continue with our lives? Um, but the question is for each of us, are we going to just try to muddle through day by day and patiently wait until this thing clears up and better vaccines, better treatments, or are we going to really push ourselves, pull ourselves forward, strive for success and excellence, despite the limitations that the COVID reality uh, puts on us. That to me is a big question 
of the moment. Mm, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm conscious that we're coming uh, to the end of our time. Um, is there anything else that we should pick up with you to, to bring this to a close? Um, I would just reinforce with your uh, listeners that confidence is your choice, but it's a choice that you're going to have to make over and over and over and over again. Um, to use a military analogy that one of my cadets many years ago finally came to uh, after a whole lot of work together, he realized that, you know, confidence, believing in oneself, having that sense of certainty was not a one-time decision. Hmm. It was, there was no decisive victory to win, you know, such as, you know, dropping an atomic bomb on uh, an enemy to end a conventional war. There was no decisive one-time victory in this ongoing process of becoming a confident individual. The cadet likened it to ongoing wars of attrition, ongoing battles. And once he decided that, once he came to grips with that, it became a lot easier for him to be comfortable with the idea of every day confronting his own self-doubt, talking himself out of it, getting on to the next issue. So ladies and gentlemen, there is no decisive victory over your own self-doubt to be won. There's just a momentary victory day after day, day after day, day after day. And that is what I believe the Chinese military philosopher Sun Tzu met when he wrote, victorious warriors win first and then go into battle, while losing warriors go into battle and then hope to win. It's that mm. first victory that you got to win time and time again, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, that's a great place to end the show. Um, yeah. Loads of very uh, powerful insights and um, some inspiration there that uh, carries us nicely into into our weekend. So yeah, um, thank you so much, Nate. Really enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, um, gentlemen, it's been my pleasure. Um, my best to you and my best to all your listeners. So before you do anything else today, make sure you order your copy of The Competent Mind. And until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you?